God of Israel, what do you imagine against the Lord? What are you planning? What are you plotting? Do you really think you can achieve this? You know, they've got a plan. They're going to come down and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy God, the God of Israel. How are you going to do that? One commentator put it this way. Do you think you can frustrate the designs of the Lord, resist his power, and hinder for him from executing his threatened, uh, uh, what he has threatened and has determined to do? Do you really imagine that you can God and do what God's going to do? Do you really imagine that you can turn the tide against God? Do you really imagine you can defeat God and the God of Israel? Do you think that you can do as you please in opposition to an all-powerful God? Do you think that God's just going to let you get away with what you've got away with for the last hundred years since the time of Jonah? Do you think that God's just going to turn a blind eye and he is going to let you get away with this. Well, think again. Because he says in verse 9, He will make another end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. He says, think again about that. God will deal with your sin, Nineveh. God will deal with your sin, Sennacherib. God will deal with his enemies. You know, it seems to me that the unsaved today think in the same light they're going on their merry way and they think it doesn't matter what they do they can do as they please without any consequences there is no consequence to their behavior there's no consequence to their disobedience there's no consequence to their rejecting of almighty god and what they need to do is they need to think again because god will judge they can't get away with it forever the day is coming when unsaved mankind will face the God of the ages and they will be judged. The unsaved should not think that God's patience is because he will overlook sin, but because he wants them to be saved. What is justice concerning is there are some believers who think they can do as they please. That God doesn't care what we do. That God doesn't require anything else. In fact, what God requires of us in his word is irrelevant. And what they want is paramount. And there are so-called believers out there today, so-called Christians in our world today, who simply reject and ignore the word of God. God's word is clear on some things, and they're black and white. They're principles of the word of God that we're supposed to stand upon, and they simply reject them as though it doesn't matter, as though it's irrelevant what God thinks. Well, they need to think again. Because what is true of the unsaved is equally true of the believer. God will not tolerate sin and disobedience. We have an obligation, beloved, to our God. We have an obligation to our Savior. And that obligation is that you and I seek His will and that you and I do His will to His glory. Isn't that why He saved us? Isn't that what He tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.20? We're bought with a price. We're not our own. Therefore glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. That is our obligation. God saved us. He made us new creatures in Christ. He made us members of his family. We are now ambassadors for Christ. We have an obligation to do his will. 
Isaiah 45, verse 9, asks this question, Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? Does the clay have the right to say to the potter, you know, I want this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to make this, and I want you to make me this, and I want you to make me that? No, the clay on the potter's wheel is at the hands of the potter. The potter will make of the clay whatever the potter wants it to be. The clay has no right to tell the potter what it wants to be, and we are just like a lump of clay in the hands of Almighty God. We have an obligation to seek His will and to do His will to His glory. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. Wherefore, we're told we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are created by God unto good works. Beloved, you and I have a great responsibility to seek God's will and do it. Because we serve a great and mighty God. Nineveh knew that. Nineveh had seen the might of God some 100 years prior to this when Jonah came up on that shore after he'd spent that time in the, way, uh, in the Bale's, Bale's Welly. I got very good. In the whale's belly. <laughs> oh, you always got to get the back front. Okay, in the whale's belly. And he was there brought up on the seashore and he went into the city of Nineveh and he preached for those days in the city of Nineveh. And the Ninevites turned to Almighty God. God re lifted his judgment from them. They knew the, the goodness of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God. They knew how great God was. But they turned their back upon him. And now God says, because you're refusing to do my will, judgment will fall. And beloved, we have a great obligation and a great responsibility to seek God's will and to do God's will. Otherwise, we're going to end up with problems, just like the Assyrians did. You know, the pride of the Assyrians had caused them to think that they were greater than God. Now, what makes us think that we can tell God what's best for us? Well, we all do it, don't we, from time to time. We go to prayer, and we tell the Lord what we want, and we're really wanting God to, to justify, God to, to uh, uh, ratify our will. And yet, you know, our will may not be the best for us. And if you really think it through, since you and I were sinners condemned to hell, and we've been gloriously saved, and we've been created in Christ Jesus, new creatures, and we are now the, the precious possession of Almighty God, what makes you and I think that we know better than God knows for our lives? It's futile. And the Assyrians found out that that kind of pride has consequences. And they were judged because they thought they were greater than God. God promises here complete destruction of the Assyrians. Look at them in verse 9 again. He will make utter end. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. He says he will make utter end of it. Nineveh was to be wiped off the face of the planet. Nineveh was ripe for a devastating judgment. This is not some harsh chastening that God's talking about here. This is not a slap on the wrist. What God's talking about here is the utter destruction of the city of Nineveh. You know, the promise there at the end of the verse where it says, Affliction shall not rise up a second time sounds encouraging. Until you realize the reason why it's not going to rise up a second time is because 
the first time is going to be so severe, there's no need for a second time. Okay? God's saying, I will not judge you a second time because your first judgment is going to be so devastating, there's going to be nothing left to judge a second time. God says, never again will Assyria invade Israel. As we move on to verse 10, we read this, For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they're drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. The prayer of the Syrian army is described as being an entangled bunch of thorns. Thorns are not easily loosed. And the imagery is that this nation of, of Assyria believed that they were so strong, they believed they were so powerful, they believed that nothing could pull them apart, they could not be destroyed, they were invincible. Sennacherib believed with a passion that the, the nation of Nineveh and the city of Nineveh and the nation of the Assyrians was indestructible. Uh, and the scribes as thorns here that are so closely joined together they cannot be pulled apart, but they are going to be cast into a fire. The Assyrian army may have seemed unbeatable, but like dry stubble, They'll be powerless with the oncoming judgment of fire. Described also as drunkards. And while they were drunken as drunkards, in other words, the description here is they were dead drunk. They were no more able to help themselves than a drunken man who falls down. That's the imagery here. This nation may feel that they're strong. They're intertwined, yes, but they can be burned. In fact, they're so helpless, they're just as helpless as a drunkard who falls down and cannot get back up again. That's this nation. That's the description God gives of this nation. And unsaved mankind can also be described that way, can't they? You know, they're drunk with sin, unable to help themselves, falling headlong into hell. They're without help in themselves. They're without hope within themselves. Beloved, you know, we need to seek the Lord to give us opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them. Because they are just like drunkards. They're heading headlong into destruction and they're going to be consumed by fire. And we ought to be praying the Lord to give us opportunity to share the gospel with them before it's eternally too late. Now, verse 10 is given to us as speakative language. It's also true that the Ninevites actually were drunk when they were attacked by their enemy. One historian put it this way, history records that the king of Assyria, being elated with his fortune and thinking himself secure, feasted his army and gave them large quantities of wine to drink. And while the whole army was indulging themselves, the enemy, having notice of their negligence and drunkenness by deserters, fell upon them unawares in the night. They were so disordered and unprepared that the enemy slaughtered them all. So it might be figurative, but ultimately it was going to come true, literally. They were going to be consumed by fire in the sense that they were going to be overrun by the enemy because they were drunk. Note what it says in verse 10. It says, For they are fallen together as thorns, and while they are uh, as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. Think of it, devoured, stubble fully dry. 
You know, the dry leftovers of the stalks of grass that uh, are left behind after the farmer's gone through them and uh, uh, taken the harvest off the, the paddock and what's left is the stubble. That's the imagery here. It's, this stubble is fully dry. And as that leftover uh, stubble is easily burned, is ready to be devoured by the smallest flame, so Nineveh is now ripe for judgment. And the fire of judgment was going to fall upon them, and when that judgment fell, it was going to be absolute, it was going to be complete. And there's no need to repeat the judgment. One blow of God will make a full end of the business. As I thought about that this week, I thought about the fact that we need to remember this. There's a day coming below when God's patience with this old world will run out. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but think that it's coming very quick these days. It just seems the pace has picked up of wickedness, has picked up even in just the last 12 months more than ever before. It just seems like the, the momentum is there and now it's picking up speed. And you just wonder, don't you, how much longer is the Lord going to tarry? You know, uh, uh, Darren mentioned the, in Sunday school this morning about uh, the days of Noah and the wickedness of the days of Noah. And the Lord says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. That's at the end of the tribulation. I just wonder how much more wicked it gets before we're living in the days of Noah. Because we certainly are living in a pretty bad day today. Judgment is coming, beloved. Our world is ripe for the judgment. And after the, after the rapture, he will unleash his judgment upon the earth. And there will be no escape. And the challenge to us once again, beloved, is this. That in these dark days, in these days whereby wickedness abounds, remember this, grace does much more abound. God's grace is still sufficient. God's grace is still available. The unsaved world can still be saved wherever there is breath. Wherever Jesus Christ does not return and you and I have opportunity, you and I still can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and souls still can get saved because God's grace is still able to save. The word of God is still quick and powerful and sharp and treasure sword. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you and I as believers need to have a boldness to stand more than ever. In these dark days because judgment is coming time is short the day is far spent the night is at hand secondly let me see the deliverance of Zion the deliverance of Zion the destruction of Nineveh the deliverance of Zion Verse 11, there is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now I will break his yoke from off thee, or burst thy bonds asunder. Verse 11 talks about a wicked counselor. There's one that cometh to thee that measures thee against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And it's generally agreed that Sennacherib is in view here, the Assyrian king who invaded Judah and surrounded Jerusalem 
in 701 BC. He besieged the city of Jerusalem. He lay siege to the city, sat around outside of it, and uh, basically was trying to starve them out of the city. You read the story in 2 Kings. It's generally believed that the story here in Nahum is that story, that event about Sennacherib, who has now besieged the city, and that the, the wicked counselor here is none other than Sennacherib himself. And in verse 12, in the light of the fact that this wicked counselor is now imagining evil against the Lord, the Lord says in verse 12, he says this, Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. In the light of the fact that this wicked counselor is imagining evil against the Lord, the Lord now gives a promise to Judah, to Jerusalem. The Assyrian army under Sennacherib thought themselves out of all danger. They were quiet, though they'd be quiet. They're sitting outside the city. They're laying siege to the city. They have no imagination that the Jews are going to be able to come out of the city of Jerusalem and overthrow them. And the longer the siege goes, the less likely it is that the people in the city are going to be able to mount enough strength to rebel against the army that's outside the city. And so they're sitting pretty. They're sitting free from danger. They think themselves that since Jerusalem is under siege, there's no problem. And yet the Lord promises this. He says, Though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. God says, you may think you're safe, but you shall be cut down. The promise here is to Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. God is saying to them by the prophet Nahum that God is going to take care of the Assyrians. They're going to be cut down. The word cut down means to, to be shorn. And yes, it's talking about, you know, a sheep and shearing the wool off the sheep. And uh, as a shearer does, that's the shorn here. Or as a, a grass is mowed with a scythe. Or how you would shave a man's beard or his head. Okay, that's the idea here. This is the image here. God's going to just cut it down, down to level. He's going he's to cut it down so low that that fire of judgment goes through the stubble. Okay, get the imagery here. Okay, God's going to take care of the crop and going to burn the stubble. The judgment's coming. God is going to deal with Israel's enemy. And the people of Judah had suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. There's no doubt about that. They'd suffered for decades, in fact. Since the time of Ahaz, the nation of Israel, and particularly those of Jerusalem and Judah, have suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. It's been an ongoing battle with them. The Assyrians have been a thorn in their flesh for many a year, many a decade. Now here in verse 12, we're informed that God himself was the cause of that affliction. This is the other startling thing about verse 12. Notice what he says. It says, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. And the Lord says to Israel, he says to, the, to those in Judah, he says, listen, I'm the one that's allowed the Assyrians to afflict thee. This affliction of the enemy that's upon you is because of your wickedness. I've allowed the wicked Assyrians to judge you. Now, 
He'd use the Assyrians as the rod of judgment against Judah. Now, the Assyrians did it for their glory. The Assyrians are humanistic and don't believe in God, and they're simply there to gain the victory over another city and puff out the chest, and Sennacherib just wants to be a great king. But God says, I'm allowing this. I've, I've allowed them to do this to bring Israel to their knees, to bring the nation of Israel to their knees. That's why God's allowed the Assyrians to do what they've done. And now God was about to remove the source of their affliction what he's saying in verse 12 yet thus they shall be cut down when he shall pass through when god passes through them he's going to cut them down and he's going to set israel free they would never be afflicted again by the assyrians that doesn't mean the affliction is going to end because they're going to be afflicted by the babylonians they're going to be afflicted by the medo persians they're going to be afflicted by the Grecians. they're going to be afflicted by the romans and they're going to be afflicted by a bunch of other people along through the centuries right up until the time that Jesus Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. But at least the Assyrian affliction is going to end. And so in verse 13 we read, For now will I break his yoke from off thee, or burst thy bonds asunder. God says, I'm going to break his yoke, and I'm going to set you free. The Assyrian yoke had caused Judah to be obligated to pay tribute and spend, send presents to the king of Assyria since the times of Ahaz. They were in bondage. They were shut up. They were besieged by the Assyrian army. But God is now about to burst their bonds asunder and to set them free from the bondage of the enemy. And this prophecy is fulfilled to the very letter. Notice what it says at the end of the verse. It says, it says in verse 13, uh, that for now I'll break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds asunder. In verse 12 he says, Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. Why? Because I'll pass, for yet thus shall they be cut down, God says. He's going to destroy them. The truth of the matter is the angel would pass through the camp of the Assyrians and they would be cut down in great numbers. In fact, 185,000 were slain at once. Go back with me to Second Kings, please. Second Kings and chapter 19. Second Kings 19. In Second Kings, we have the story of the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. Hezekiah is the king and, and tells the whole story. And this is, this is aligned with the prophecy of Isaiah. And if you read the book of Isaiah, you find that these events of, uh, of Second Kings 19 are repeated for us in Isaiah 37. So Isaiah the prophet is prophesying at this time. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35, we read this. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass he was worshipping the house of Nishkog, his god, and Abramelech and Sharazah. His son smote him with a sword, and they escaped from the land of Armenia. And uh, Eshurdon, the son, reigned in his stead. So here we are. We find the siege comes to an end when the angel Lord passes through the camp, and 185,000 Assyrians die. 
And you know the story. Somebody goes out, remember the lepers go out from the camp, have a look around, and they find that they're all dead. Come back and tell them the, the camp of the Assyrians are dead. That's the story that Nahum's talking about. He's prophesying about that event. He's telling them that God's going to come and he's going to go through the camp and he's going to destroy them and there'll be nothing left of the Assyrians. And dismayed and discouraged, Sennacherib lifted the siege. And he returned home to Nineveh where ultimately he was destroyed. God's people look weak and afflicted. And yet God promises that they will be strengthened and restored. The power of their oppressors will be broken. He said, I'll broke off their yoke from you. You know, there's a wonderful promise here for all of us. You know, God promises even you and I to deliver you and I from our enemies. We know we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that there's no temptation taken us, but such as common to man. But God will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. And the believer of the day who is trapped and oppressed by sin can also ask God to break the yoke of sin and break the yoke just as God broke the yoke of the Assyrians. If you and I will turn to God, we'll cry out to God in the midst of our darkest days, God can and will deliver us. I mean, think about it. The nation of Israel, we're wicked. The nation of Israel have done wickedness in the eyes of their God. But God loved his people so much that when they cried out to him, he delivered them even from the Assyrians who were besieging their city by sending an angel through the enemy and destroying it. That same God is the God that you and I worship, beloved. That same God is our God. That same God is the one who has the power to deliver you and I from our enemy. And the greatest enemy we have is our self and sin, and God can deliver us if we'll just trust him. It must be done with a complete willingness to walk in the freedom God gives. But only God can break off the power of the things that bind us. And God will if we trust him. If we trust him, he can and will deliver us. And we can have the victory just like the nation of Israel. Thirdly, see the end of the wickedest, wicked in Assyria. In verse 14. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown out of the house of thy gods. Will I cut off the graven image and the molten image, and I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Here we return to Sennacherib. He kind of spoke about the wicked counselor. Then he talks about what God's going to do to deliver Israel, a promise to Judah of deliverance. And now he returns to Sennacherib, a man who thought that he could defeat God. Remember, he's the wicked counselor who it tells us in verse 11. It says, there is one come out of thee that imagines the evil against the Lord. He's the one that thinks he can defeat God. Sennacherib had made himself a Nineveh truly great. He'd built a famous palace within, without rival in Nineveh. It was 182 meters by 192 meters. It had 80 rooms lined with sculptures. It was a magnificent palace that he lived in. And his pride was vile to God. Verse 14, we read, And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more thy name be sown out of the house of thy gods. Will I cut off the graven image and the molten image, and I'll make thy grave for thou vile. He was vile to God. God hated his pride. And the Lord has three pronouncements of judgment against the king. God promises to end his dynasty. 
that no more thy, thy name be sown. Okay, he's going to end his dynasty. No one would rule, ever rule who bore his name. The city of Nineveh was once instantly recognized as one of the greatest power cities of the world. But now God promises to bring this wicked city and this wicked king so low that they lose their legacy, they lose their name, and Sennacherib has nobody to ever sit upon the throne of Assyria again. Not only was the dynasty cut off, but the temple with their idol worship was to be done away. Notice what it says. He says, Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. And this came true when the Medes invaded Nineveh. The Medes were a wicked nation, but the Medes hated idolatry. Can you believe that? Okay. The Medes didn't like idolatry, and they destroyed the idols of the Assyrians, just as God promised they would, which is probably not the source the Assyrians would have thought the destruction would come. You would have thought Israel had destroyed the idols, but it was actually the Medes who destroyed the idols in Assyria, fulfilling the prophecy. Thirdly, the king will die and be burned, it says, uh, uh, there at the end of the verse, I will make, uh, sorry, and I will make thy grave for thy art vile. Sennacherib died at the hands of his own sons in the temple of his gods. Look at Isaiah 37, 38. Isaiah 37, 38. This is Isaiah's version of what we read in 2 Kings. Look at Isaiah 37, 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelled in Nineveh. And it came to pass that he was worshipped in the house of Nishok, his god, that Adramelech and Sharazar, the son smote, his son smote him with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Killed by his own sons. What a terrible way to end your life. But that's what pride does. He was vile before Almighty God. He rejected God. He thought he could usurp God. He thought he could beat God. And God says, you're vile. Your pride is vile to me. You will die. And God judges him. He proved as many before and many after him that God will not tolerate his enemies for long. God hates pride. He loves humility. Therefore, you and I need to learn humility. You know, James 4, 6 says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. James 6, 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Sennacherib stands as an example to you and I of what not to do. You and I need to humble ourselves before our holy God. You and I ought not to think that we know better than God for our lives. You and I need to not think that we know better than God for what is best for us. You and I need to humbly bow ourselves before a holy God and we need to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Allow him to have his way in our lives. And while Sennacherib is an unsaved man, an ungodly king, he stands as a, as a stark reminder to you and I as believers that God resisteth the proud and giveth grace. To the humble, therefore humble ourselves before a holy God. And say, not my will, but thine be done. Then lastly, he gives a promise to Judah. 
in verse 15. He says, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Judah would no longer fear this cruel enemy. From mountain top to mountain top, by beacon fire to beacon fire, they were going to spread the good news. The Sennacherib was defeated. Assyria is destroyed. Suddenly the deliverance comes. Suddenly the announcement is made. Notice how it starts the verse. Behold! Behold! Victory is here. Judah before hindered by her, arm, by the, her enemies from going forth from Jerusalem, going forth from its cities, and now again able to keep the feast at Jerusalem. Notice what God says there about them. He says, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. They can now go back to worshiping God the way they should. They can keep their feast. They can keep their vows. They can worship him. Pay our vows, which in trouble she promised. You know, the prophet here speaks as if he were a sentinel in the city waiting for the news from battle, as though he's standing on the rampart of the city of Jerusalem and he's looking out to hear the news of the battle. And will the news be one of victory or defeat? Suddenly, he sees a runner in the distance running towards the city. And as the herald gets closer, he hears the herald proclaiming the good news. The victory is won. It's time to rejoice. Peace has come to Israel. The Assyrians have fled. The victory is won. Beloved, you tonight too are like those heralds running forth with the good news, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's what it says here in this verse. Says, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publish peace. Now let me read for you Romans 10, 15. How shall they preach except they be sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. And bring glad tidings of good things. Did you know that was an Old Testament quote? It is. It's actually quoted twice in the Old Testament. Once in Isaiah and once here in Nahum. And the imagery of, he, of Romans 10 is that you and I, that herald, running towards the city, bringing the good news that the victory has been won. Christ has died for the sins of the world. Hallelujah. And we're coming forth to herald the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We're like those messengers coming back to the city to report that 185,000 Assyrians are dead. Victory is secured. That's what we're to be doing. And how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. What's it say? Behold, upon the man is the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace. contrast between the fate of the godly and the wicked is nothing but good news to Nahum and the people. The reason for this is the wicked one, the ungodly significant, the ugly, vile person is cut off. He'll no more pass through their presence. God will always deliver his people from their enemies. 
God has delivered us from the greatest enemies. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory. Christ is the victor. And you have a you and I have a message of peace to proclaim to a world. Victory is secure. Knowing the grace and mercy of God, one commentator said, knowing the grace and mercy of God to his people, uh, of God to his people, his people should not make uh, the believer, uh, this should not make the believer careless in obedience. He should make the believer more careful to obey every word of the Lord. The fact that you and I know the grace and mercy of God should not make you and I careless in doing God's will. It should make you and I more zealous for the will of God. Let's trust the Lord. Let's serve him. For we're on the victor's side, beloved. Like Israel have an enemy. Like Israel, the Lord has delivered us from that enemy. He's given us the victory. He set us free. Now you and I can rest in him. And while we wait for him to come again and take us home to glory, you and I need to be like the preacher of old. We need to be like that herald running towards the city. And you and I need to be proclaiming the gospel of peace to a lost and dying world till Jesus comes. Let's praise God. The victory is ours. Let's proclaim the gospel till Jesus comes. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the book of Nahum. And Lord God, it often surprises in the midst of even passages of Scripture that are dealing with wicked nations like the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria and the king's synagogue. You find such wonderful truths as the herald coming forth, bringing a message of peace and victory. And then, Lord God, you equate what we have to do in the New Testament to that very verse, Father God, that you and I, that we are to, Father God, be as those heralds going forth proclaiming the gospel of peace to the lost and dying world. Help us, Father God, because we have victory in Christ, that power and passion to proclaim the gospel to the lost and dying world. Bless now as we close, we pray in Jesus' name. I didn't know what to sing in closing tonight.